Good morning. Good morning, everybody. So this is the final act. That was the most creative title I could come up with. <laughs> we have been working on uh, teaching the, the book of Acts. Uh, Tyler reminded me right before uh, church, I think since the end of May. And so we've, we've been going all summer. Uh, we've really enjoyed it, both because uh, it's, it's rare for us to do a, a book or a topic study on such a sustained basis, but we've also done a reading plan along with that uh, for you know, each week as we're prepping for a, a service. And so we've, I've really enjoyed a reminder of the, really the, the exciting, dynamic creation of the church and the, the establishment of the church after uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and these first disciples as they began to establish the church and then spread it throughout what was then the, the known world. So where we're going to pick up now is in the last two chapters of Acts, chapter 27 and 28. And the prelude to this, the last couple of weeks, if, you, if you've been here or been following along, uh, Paul, the, the guy who first began uh, as, a, as an opponent of the church and a persecutor, now has become the, the main uh, apostle for spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish uh, people. And, and we're talking mainly of the, the Mediterranean, we're talking the Middle East and, and uh, Greece, and, and as we'll see here today, all the way to Italy. So Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem and had been accused of various nefarious things by the Jewish leaders there who were against the spread of Christianity. He had actually been arrested uh, by the Romans kind of as a rescue so that the, the mob didn't kill him. And then Paul had gone through uh, before a couple of different Roman rulers as they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy. And that's really what was going on. They're like, what do we do with this guy? If we let him loose or we have him try Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. We don't think he's done anything wrong. And then Paul, being a Roman citizen, says uh, he knows his rights. He knows the law. He knows the procedures. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And they said, okay, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you will go. And now we are into chapter 27 where he is going to begin and I did not bring the clicker, so it looks like you're running the slides back there. He's going to begin his journey to Rome. So this begins in uh, chapter 27. Look at that first uh, scripture, please. <clears throat> Embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to... So I was just swinging that one. I had, I had, you know, sometimes you skip over certain names, and that was one I had skipped over. Which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea. So we, this is Luke who's the narrator, okay? Luke is, uh, was, a, was a historian and a doctor who had um, written the book of Luke, and now he'd written the book of Acts. He is accompanying Paul through, through these journeys and had been for quite some time. So when he says we, he means at a minimum himself and Paul. But I, I want to highlight this other gentleman here, Aristarchus. It says we, we were accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So who is Aristarchus? And I want to highlight him just because you're going to see his, his faithfulness. Let's go back to Acts chapter 19. So this is a few years before. Paul was in Ephesus, and there's a gentleman there named, look at Aristarchus. The city was filled with confusion. I'll explain why in a minute. They rushed into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So in Ephesus at that time, as Paul is teaching, keep in mind his, his teaching is, is creating some hostility and some agitation kind of wherever he goes. 
because he is challenging the order and he's challenging the established religions and the beliefs that are in these various places, trying to teach them the true word of God. So in Jerusalem, he's receiving hostility and encountering uh, opposition from the Jewish leaders. In Ephesus, it's, it's a different group. It's a, it's a pagan group that is uh, worshiping uh, a Greek goddess named Artemis, okay? But again, same deal. They're, they don't like this guy. He's stirring things up. He's going to take away their believers, sometimes take away their money through whatever scam they're running. And, and they were able to get, the people who were against him were able to get the crowd really whipped up into a frenzy. Well, one of the people that almost got, uh, you know, he grabbed, got grabbed by the mob and they almost killed him that night was, was Aristarchus, a Macedonian, meaning he's from Macedonia, which is uh, a neighbor of Greece. Well, Aristarchus wasn't done. <clears throat> if you go to the book of Colossians, which is a different book, but it's a letter that Paul had written to the people uh, from, uh, from Colossae, I think, I don't remember. Uh, he, he is in prison. Paul is in prison at this point, writing this letter, and he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Okay? So Aristarchus is in this thing for the long haul with Paul. He's been faithful. He went through the riot at Ephesus. He is now voluntarily boarding this ship where Paul is a prisoner, and he's being sent across the Mediterranean to Rome, which is no easy feature. It's not like going on a yacht these days and just, uh, you know, kicking the turbo on whatever engine you've got and, and a sail, sailing across this beautiful, placid uh, sea. That's not what you'll see is about to happen. But then even after ultimately they arrive, and spoiler, they do arrive in Rome and they're in prison, uh, Aristarchus voluntarily stays in prison with him. Paul was imprisoned. Aristarchus was not. And uh, also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, there, it, it appears what would happen is sometimes they would designate people to go stay with Paul at a prison for a year or so, and then they would rotate out. And then sometimes Paul wasn't in prison. As you'll see at the end, he was actually on basically house arrest. But sometimes his prison conditions were actually pretty serious. So I just want to highlight Aristarchus is a guy who not only believes in the, the vision and believes in the, the ministry and believes in the message of the gospel, but he's also committed himself as a servant to help and strengthen Paul through times of danger. And that, what that's, that's showing us is that's showing the, the heart that he has, that he's setting aside his own, whatever his priorities were before that, but he's also willing to, to place himself in danger for the gospel. So let's go back to Acts. <clears throat> so in Acts 27, they've begun the journey across the Mediterranean. As I indicated to you, it's not a safe or easy journey. And the time of year that they went, it turned out that the weather is pretty rough. And so they got into a series of very difficult storms and things are going badly. The, the crew is losing hope. Everyone is losing hope. And <clears throat> what, what's interesting about this, before we begin, is that Paul had warned them not to travel. He told them, ah, this isn't going to go well. We need to stay in a certain place for the winter and they, they don't believe him. So the weather is bad. No, the sun and stars haven't appeared for many days. Uh, no small tempest lay on us. I think that's an understatement. And all hope was being abandoned. So Paul says, all right, God's spoken to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take charge here. And I'm going um, to uh, bring the word of the Lord. He stands up and he says, First of all, you should have listened to me. 
Remember back when I told you, let's not travel, this journey's not going to go well? You didn't listen to me, you should have. Uh, But you did. So now, please listen to me. Please take heart. There will be no loss of life on on this vessel. The ship will be lost, but the people will not. For this night, there stood before me an angel of God, the God that I belong to and the God that I worship. And he said, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. So what's interesting here is God has a purpose that he's trying to fulfill, which is he wants Paul to stand before Caesar. If you remember back the last several weeks, there were several places through when he was traveling from Greece, when he was traveling through Asia, when he was traveling on his way to Jerusalem, when multiple people told him, don't go to Jerusalem. They, in fact, had received a word from the Lord, or kind of a forewarning from the Lord, saying, when Paul goes there, he is going to, in fact, be, uh, he's going to be captured. And then some even prophesied his own death. And they're saying, Paul, don't do it. Paul, don't do it. And Paul understands he's not about his own purposes. He's about God's purposes. So God's telling him, you are going to go to Jerusalem. And then ultimately, he tells him, you're going to go to Rome, despite all these people telling him otherwise. Why? Because God's plan is what Paul is trying to accomplish. He isn't trying to save his own life. There's another place in, in another book where, where he says, for me to live or to die is gain, but to, but to live is for the Lord's. Because he he, what he wanted to do is he wanted to actually go home to heaven to be with the Lord, but he understood he had to stay and can, can fulfill his ministry on the earth for the people that, were, uh, that he was supposed to, to meet. So here he says, the angel's telling him, confirming, I'm taking you to Rome. You need to stand before Caesar. So take heart. I'm going to prevent the the loss of life, both of Paul, his companions, and everybody on the ship, but the ship will run aground and be lost. Well, guess what happens? The centurion on board who is in charge of Paul listens to him. He didn't listen to him before when Paul said, don't don't take this particular journey because we're going to run into a bad storm. But this time he listens to him. So he says, okay, everybody, we're going to be okay. Well, then guess what happens? There's a place where the sailors decide this ship is going down, and they start getting the lifeboats, and they're lowering them to sneak away. So the crew that's running the ship is going to sneak away and leave the passengers on board. And as this is happening, Paul says, uh, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's an all-or-nothing deal. And the, and the centurion believes him so much at this point that he cuts away the ropes and the lifeboats float away because they've already gone down and they're having difficulty getting them back up. So, and then he, he cuts the lifeboats away because now temptation's gone. Nobody else is getting on a lifeboat. They're gone. We're all in this together. So that tells you how the centurion's uh, trust in God and his fulfillment of word through Paul has grown over the course of this journey. So then they land on the island of Malta. And on the island of Malta, in fact, the ship gets broken up on the rocks on the shore. They all have to swim to shore. They all make it. They all survive. And on the island of Malta, God performs multiple miracles through Paul. The first thing that happens is he gets bit by a deadly viper, but he doesn't die. And all the natives that are there there see this. And this is interesting. They say, well, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. So they believe from seeing the fact that there was a shipwreck and then that there was a snake that immediately bit him, they're like, his fate is to die. He's done something wrong and uh, nature's going to get him one way or the other. And yet 
he doesn't die. He doesn't get sick. And so then they realize something beyond nature is protecting him through all these trials. That something is the Holy Spirit who wants to accomplish his purposes. This, this, event, or excuse me, this event then prompts uh, an opportunity for Paul to begin to spread the message of gospel on Malta and also to begin to pray to heal other people. And so he actually goes on to pray and heal multiple people. A man named Publius, there's like a million Publiuses back then. Uh, he lay sick and with fever and dysentery. Paul visits him and prays and he's healed. And then the people from the island are bringing all these people uh, that are sick with diseases to, to, for them to be prayed for and to be healed. And they are. And so <clears throat> throughout, think about this, throughout all these different calamities that are falling upon Paul, he, along the way, God is still glorifying God's name. God's not glorifying Paul. He's glorifying his own name. And he's, and he's helping people and he's spreading his gospel. Had they not wrecked on Malta, the word of God would not have gone to Malta at this time. All these people that were sick would not have been healed. So God's using this calamity in order to do good things for these people and to heal them. And then we're going to, they, they have to wait in Malta for a while. They wait, wait for another ship. They eventually uh, another ship arrives or, or they catch one that's docking. The weather's cleared and now they're able to go on to Rome. So this journey actually took a very long time for him to get from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. When he finally gets to Rome, let's place ourselves in the context of Paul. So this, as, as, we've, as we've explored, he was a, a, a great Jewish scholar, right? He was a zealous Pharisee who had been transformed by a personal relationship with, with Christ, a personal revelation from Christ to one of the leading uh, teachers, uh, missionaries, and, uh, fo- and followers of Christ throughout the Christian movement. They called it the way in Jerusalem and then all through the, the map of the Mediterranean. Along the way, he had raised people from the dead. Not he had, the Holy Spirit had, but Paul had been the, the one with faith praying for it. He had prayed for people to have demons cast out of them. He had prayed for people to be healed. He had, he had taught and raised up churches uh, throughout every place that he went. He had, a st- he had prayed and, and he had taught people so that they became Christians. And then he had taught them in doctrine so that they understood uh, right, right thinking in terms of, under, of who is Christ and his message of grace. He had then overseen these churches and watched them multiply and he had been the father of, of thousands spiritually. Then he had suffered through all these different persecutions, but along the way, many, many mighty signs and wonders had attended him. He had been rescued from jail. He had been rescued from a, a crowd that wanted to stone, stone him. He had been, they thought he was dead. Uh, he received lashes and been, they thought he was uh, dead from a stoning, and yet God had preserved him. And now he had taken this journey where he had been able to, through his faith and through his relationship and rapport and trust that he had built with the people on that ship, he was able to bring this crew through uh, by trusting in God so that they were rescued and and saved from death, a terrible drowning death at sea, the, the fear of every sailor. But then he had gone to Malta and then God had performed miracles through him. So this is a guy who is the, you know, one of the great superstars of the Bible in terms of what he has accomplished and what God has done through him. And you'd be thinking, this man is like the, you know, the, the superhero at this point in his life. And so watch what happens with this next verse. He gets to Rome. 
And we're in Romans chapter, uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 15 and 16. And the brothers there, meaning the other Christians who were already there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. <clears throat> Look at this. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And then when they came into Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with one soldier who guarded him. Paul thanked God and took courage when he saw fellow Christians coming to greet him. Doesn't that seem odd? The superhero who had done all these things for so many years, at that point, he needed his fellow believers to be there to give him courage. Because we all reach a point, don't we, when we are getting wiped out. We all reach a point when the Lone Ranger is really not an adventure anymore. And that's where Paul was. Paul needed the encouragement of his fellow believers. It reminds me of a, a story from the Old Testament. If you go to the book of 1 Kings, you learn about a man named Elijah, who was a mighty prophet of God. And he had been battling against an evil king of Israel named Ahab and his wife named Jezreel. And they ended up having a big showdown where uh, Elijah was versus the prophets of Baal, which was a religion, uh, the, a nature religion that God had said was, was forbidden and was anathema in Israel. And at this showdown, God called down fire to uh, destroy the, to burn up the, the offering that Elijah gave him. And in the process then was able to defeat the, the prophets of Baal. It's an amazing story. But after that happened, then Elijah had to flee because now the queen was after him uh, with her soldiers and uh, they wanted his life. So Elijah's hiding out in a cave. And he says to God, he's speaking to God in 1 Kings 19, verse 14. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They threw down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it. He is convinced he's the only one left. He's all alone. And despite the amazing things that he had just done, the power of God that was, that was put on display, he is all alone and he's lamenting to God that he's all alone. But then God says to him, no, there are 7,000 more in Israel who have not bowed their knee to this false God and they've not kissed him. I have more. And that wasn't a retort to, to Elijah saying, I don't need you. It was a message of hope. You're not alone. Have some encouragement that you're not alone. You're not the only one fighting for worship, for righteousness in God. You're not the only one carrying on this struggle, even though it feels like it. And if you want to, a couple other examples, which I didn't put in here, but if you want to look at Jeremiah, go look at Jeremiah, how Jeremiah often was <laughs> really alone. And he was being persecuted and tormented by the people that he was there to speak and how he was so uh, lamenting that fact that he was all alone and that there, are other, there weren't others who were speaking up with courage and suffering, sharing his suffering. So that's, I think that's something that we have to, we have to take a look at as far as who we are and as far as how we work together. 
whoever is speaking, whoever is serving, whoever is carrying on in the word of the Lord, the worst thing that we can do is let them do that by themselves. We need to be there. We need to join them in their work. We need to join them in their suffering. We need to join them in their sacrifice. We need to encourage them. We need to be together in unity. And, and what an example of that that JR just shared. This church in Lane Deer. A woman who said, well, there's no men around here to do it. I'm going to take it on myself. And she is leading this ministry. And she is, she is literally, I mean, it's, it's like one of these situations. She is a servant trying to bring God's light to a very dark place. That, that's where we need to be. We need to be joining her. We need to be joining our fellow uh, spiritual laborers and warriors so that they are not alone. Because when they're alone, no matter how much the power of God is working through them, no matter how much success they're having, they're going to reach a point like Elijah did. They're going to reach a point like Paul did, like Jeremiah did, when they will be discouraged and they will need courage to be brought to them by other people. They need help. And that's us, right? Look around. We've got a great big crowd of people here. I have a, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's a cliche that I say this all the time, but the number one rule of spiritual warfare is you never fight alone. That's what we need to do. We need to look at things in this body and things we're doing here, but out in the street as well. And if, if you're looking around and you're going, I want to do something, I don't know what to do, Find someone else that's doing something that's consistent with our ministry and our priorities and the God, God's word and help them and encourage them. They need it. And they will be so grateful if you'll join them and support them. And we as a church, that's what we're, that's what we're about. That's what we want to do. In fact, uh, what's interesting thing about this is that Paul kind of forecasts this exact thing when he was speaking to the, the people in Rome on the way in there. So I'm going to get to that right now. <clears throat> so if you go to the book of Romans, the book of Romans was written by Paul. And it was a letter from Paul to the Christian church that was in Rome. And this was written before Paul got there. So this, we're going back in time a little bit. So before Paul got there on this big uh, Mediterranean cruise, <clears throat> you can imagine the customer complaint forms on that cruise. <laughs> Never go back. This is worse than the COVID quarantine. So before all that happened, Paul sent a letter to the people uh, that were Christians in Rome. And he said, <clears throat> I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your work is proclaimed in all the world. And Rome's important. I'm going to come back to this. Rome's important. And he says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He did eventually, right? By God's will, through thick and thin, he got to Rome. And that was God's plan for him, by the way. For I long to see you that I might, may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Look at this. Look at these words. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Isn't that incredible? He sends this saying, we need to support each other, mutually encourage each other's faith, and then guess what happens? He ends up getting there by a long, arduous journey, and he gets exactly what he needed. He gets encouragement and strengthening from the believers in Rome who had already read this letter. And I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have been prevented, 
so that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. And so this is where we get into what was God's purpose in bringing Paul to Rome. He goes on to talk about how we have the, the obligations to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. And then, this is ultimately the fulfillment of it. He gets to Acts chapter, he gets to Rome at the end of Acts chapter 28, and he says, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. So before we get that, let's think about the different, the personality of some of the different places he's been, right? We talked about Ephesus. We talked about how there was a, uh, a uh, pagan cult that was there and that the people were determined to keep worshiping these various uh, pagan cults. We talked about Athens earlier where they worshiped every possible God there was. And Paul said, I'm going to speak to you about the unknown God. Well, let's also think about the personality of Jerusalem that he had just come from. It was the heart of Israel, right? It was the God's, God's city, and it was also the place where the Jewish leadership had such a hold over the power uh, uh, of the, the city that the Romans were constantly placating them because they don't want a rebellion every time they turn around. The Jewish leaders had a tremendous amount of authority and influence in Jerusalem to the point where had, had the Romans let him, he, Paul could have been, been killed there. Remember, that's what they did to Jesus. That's not the case in Rome. The Jewish leaders do not have that kind of influence in Rome. In fact, they're one of the persecuted minorities in Rome. And so when Paul ultimately gets to Rome, <clears throat> the, the, the Christian church hasn't quite gotten to the point of having the, the um, persecution that comes under Nero. It had some persecution. But mainly, the Jewish leaders at that point recognize they have to play nice because they don't have the ability to have them arrested and flogged in public in the city of Rome. They are also a, a minority. That gives Paul a tremendous amount of freedom to then worship as a Christian, to communicate with the Jewish leaders and try to evangelize. But then also, Rome is the hub. Rome's the center of the Roman Empire. And people from all over the known world are coming to Rome. And they have all these different beliefs and all these different religions, but they're communicating to the entire empire. So this is the place where God wants the gospel to really take off because from Rome, the message can go everywhere. I mean, they, they literally, the saying was, all roads lead to Rome. And the message of Christ then can then go from Rome to places that you're not going to get through the backwater uh, uh, messaging from, from Israel. And then God ultimately says he wants Paul to stand before Caesar. Why? Because Caesar thought he was a God on earth. And Caesar, later, when it's Nero, he was an embodiment of, a, of an evil ruler, and God wanted to bring that showdown, okay? So first, let's finish with what Paul did when he got to Rome. First of all, he begins meeting and inviting the Jewish leaders. So these are not people who are Christians. These are people who are still practicing Judaism. And he says, come, let's meet. And he says, uh, before this, he says, I know I've got all these bad things that everyone's saying about me in Jerusalem, but I want you to hear it from me. And they said, we haven't heard anything from Jerusalem. 
we didn't get a letter from Jerusalem. We don't, we don't, we've heard about you, but we don't uh, have the, the, the message from, uh, you know, any of the high priests in Jerusalem saying, kill this guy. So he starts off with a pretty good, a pretty blank slate. So he begins teaching from morning to evening about the kingdom of God and trying to explain to them how the Moses and the laws and the prophets and the, are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Some were convinced and some disbelieved. And then some got angry because he quoted an Old Testament prophecy and, and, uh, that, that they didn't like. And so some of them were offended and they left. But then it says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is an example of where uh, Paul, God used that setting in Rome for his glory. He spends two years there under much more freedom than he had in Jerusalem and able to reach people throughout the world that he would not have reached in Jerusalem. So what ultimately happened with Paul, we're not really sure. There's a couple different stories and theories out there. One theory is that he stayed there and then ultimately uh, he, he did have some kind of a, uh, appearance before uh, Nero and Nero was uh, one of the, the great evil men in history, and that Nero had him beheaded. There's also uh, a story that he was released after this two years, and that he continued on to Spain, and that he then had a missionary journey and uh, work in Spain, and then no one really knows after that. We know he eventually died because he's not alive today. <laughs> I can say that with some level of confidence. So remember, as a recap of how we got here, we got here when a fisherman from a little town in Israel, or carpenter, I should say, met a bunch of fishermen, and he began speaking to them about the words of life, and he brought through three years of the most amazing ministry of any person ever had on earth, and he gave his life as a ransom for all of us. And had he died, that would have been the end of the story. But it wasn't the end of the story, was it? Because he rose again. And that's, that's the centrality of the gospel. If Christ didn't rise again, then we're all the most pitiful of all people, as Paul said later. And then he established his church. He established through bringing the Holy Spirit, giving power to his believers. And they, they then began spreading that word to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And along the way, they picked up this radical named Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, and, and, and Jesus himself personally converted Paul. And then Paul was able to not only spread to the, the, the Jewish world, but then he was able to spread to the Gentiles. Because that was God's plan. And God had him as a designated messenger to reach the world. To the point where he even went to the center of earthly power, which was Rome at that time, and along the way, he continued to uh, write. He continued to teach. You know, we, have, we have all these books of the Bible. But this is not a gospel of Paul. It's a gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was merely a servant. And he was merely a messenger. And he was merely a willing leader to say and do the things that God prompted him and asked him to do. And so there are 28 books in, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and it ends with literally that last verse that he was teaching, and uh, that's it. 
It doesn't say the rest of the story with Paul. It doesn't say the rest of the story with the Christian church because we haven't reached the rest of the story. We knew someone who uh, had a ministry, and he called it Acts chapter Acts 29 Ministries because he was saying we're writing the continuing chapters in the books of, book of Acts. So that means all of us, we are the servants. We are the disciples. We are the ministers. We're writing those chapters in Acts. And we're not writing them in a book that, like this, but we, we are writing them in the book of, of between us and the Lord. And, and one of the things that I would encourage you to do is ask yourself, first of all, okay, think about what I can do today versus what they could do back then. I'm not being arrested and flogged because I <clears throat> am preaching the gospel. I'm not limited to a place where it takes me two years to cross the Mediterranean Sea. I'm, I'm not limited to sending a letter by messenger that may take a year to arrive at its recipient. I live in a place where I can communicate, where I can, as we have done here, send aid directly or indirectly to persecuted churches in Pakistan, where I can, I can speak freely to my friends and family or co-workers tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that without, uh, about the gospel of Christ without being uh, persecuted. And where we have, for example, a community in great need in Lame Deer, Montana, where we've become aware of this. And elders, we've been praying for uh, a year about this goal of we have, uh, we have reservations in this, in this uh, state that are almost like they're literally, they've been pulled out of time, they've been pulled out of society. It's a whole different existence there. I've lived on a couple of reservations. I know, uh, I've lived on one, I guess. But I know what that life is like. And they are a, a, a mission field where the people are desperate for hope. They're desperate for change. They're desperate for love. They're desperate for the gospel of Christ. It's up to us to take this. It's, it's, this isn't an historical exercise where we just read and we go, wow, those guys were brave back then. Wow, those guys did amazing things back then. The God that they preached is the God we preach. Jesus is still alive. The Holy Spirit still wants to work through all of us. And people today, if they don't know the saving word of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, are still in jeopardy of eternal suffering. So that's our mission. As we close it up, let's commit. Ask ourselves as a church. Ask ourselves as a church. Ask us individually. God, what am I willing to do to take that next step? It's the final act for this book and this group of people, but it's not the final act for us. It's the next, it's the next act for us. And that's what our future needs to be in the coming days. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your amazing, motivating story. Thank you for, thank you for the, uh, I mean, at a minimum, thank you for the amazing diligence of Luke as a historian to travel, to capture these details, to share uh, this history with us, to inspire today's church and future generations and past generations, that we too can serve you, that we too can be your messengers, and that in those times of travel, of danger, of not knowing quite what to do, you, you God, you Holy Spirit, are our companion 
You are our guide. You are the one who empowers us to share the good news of eternal life in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to do that. Help us to be committed to that. Help us to be willing to take risks. Help us to focus on, first, how we can help those and encourage those who are currently fighting that ministry battle on behalf of your son, but then also how we can then take those next steps, those acts that we are going to write, those chapters and stories that we are going to write, not for our own glory, but as it says here, as Paul did, for the glory of you and for the salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen.